We've got a special thing before I go ahead and get started to teach this morning. To my right, to your left, is Wes White. Wes White is a missionary in Spain. He's in Valencia, Spain. That's where they'll be going in February the 1st. And several years ago, several years ago, Wes and his family, a family of a total of six, four kids, were called to go to Spain. They were coming from California. They relocated back to this area on their way to Spain. And they, they prayed for a church to be able to sponsor them and send them to Spain, to send them to Spain. And we, I, as the pastor of the Creek Church, was praying that God would give us a city and give us a missionary that is in that city that we could help them really reach that city with the gospel. And so God in his sovereignty brought them to us one Sunday morning, and we actually went to seminary together. We knew of each other. But it's been an incredible, incredible journey to see what God is doing in Spain through Wes and Michelle White and their four kids. I've had a chance to visit them over there, and uh, there's some really neat things going on. And so Wes is going to share just briefly here, just right now, and uh, then I'll come back and we'll go into Galatians. So Wes White. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm Wes, and um, our family is a white family. I didn't have a picture up, but uh, listen, yeah, we, we serve in Spain, or if you want to try your Spanish, you can say España. And uh, we arrived in 2010 which was a pretty good year for us because that's the year that Spain won the World Cup. And uh, pretty exciting. How many guys love soccer? Okay, absolutely hated it when I arrived. Absolutely love it now, though. So uh, uh, just an incredible, incredible place, incredible journey for us. We just finished our first three and a half years uh, there. And so it's been a great partnership with, with Matt and just, uh, man, what they've done and meant to us. What I want to do this morning is just tell you why we do what we do and, and what we do while we're over there. Why do we go? Well, that's pretty simple. That's the easy part, right? That's because the scripture tells us the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, and the Greek word, that word is ethnos, which means every people group. And so, listen, it's not just a command for Northwest, and, but it's, I think it's almost an individual command, too, that we go and be a people that are not just so focused on where we're at, but understand that we have a command to go to every people group. And so uh, our family, we answered that call, and we're, we're, uh, we serve through the International Mission Board, and we're able to go and and try to reach people group that's never heard the gospel. And so one scripture tells us also, just because of lostness, when Matt came over with Matt Hahn, and he came and visited me uh, in our second year there, when we're going through language study, we're still trying to get it adjusted, he said, what keeps you here? I mean, because it was hard. First year we lost, I lost my grandmother, my aunt, and my uncle, and my wife lost her good friend all in our first year. And so you get, to, you get lonely, and you get discouraged while you're there, and he says, what keeps you here? I said, see all these little small towns are driving by? He said, yeah. I said, that's what keeps me here. As far as we know, there's not one person there that knows Christ. The area we're in was actually Cothras, and, and out of 1.1 million people that were in this providence of Extrema Dura, only about, there's only about 400 to 500 believers spread among 20 churches in 20 towns out of 800 and I think 16 towns in the state. Now think about that. We're in the south. There's a church almost in every corner. I said, Matt, that's what keeps me there is lostness. As we get ready to head to Valencia, it's at 0.6%. Over the last 15 years, they've seen 229% increase in evangelical faith. And we got to 0.6%. That's incredible. We're heading to Valencia. It has 2.2 million people. And most of the growth that happened in these last 15 years has really been because of immigrant growth. It's never really not been among the national Spaniards. And so part of what we want to do is my wife and our family, we really want to be intentional about reaching nationals. They're reaching the Spaniards because... Man, they're just, they're not getting the gospel. So how we want to do it, we want to do it in three things when we move to Valencia. One is we want to, of course, start small groups and eventually lead them to churches, but 
churches or small groups that start other small groups, kind of like your life groups here. We want to do that and see those reproduced in the other life groups. We also want to uh, attack university. I used to youth pastor here in Raleigh, North Carolina for eight years across town at and uh, a church in Northeast Raleigh. And, uh, and then we went to California and student ministry there. And so I have a heart for students and student ministry. And so we wanted to try to reach students at the University of Valencia, which is one of the largest universities in the country. And there's hardly anybody trying to reach university students. And our last thing we want to do is just partner with nationals because we know they know the language and they know the culture better. And we want to partner national pastors and say, how can we help? How can I come along and serve you to help reach the goal that God's called us to do, and that's to share Christ with all Spain, but also all the world. Pastor July, someone came to me and said this, said, hey, uh, there's a Spanish Baptist union throughout the whole Spain. He said, uh, we have five missionaries that we send all to the same country in Africa, and uh, we want to have more of a global focus. He says, will you help us? I think we can do that. Come on. And uh, yeah, so I got this great command. I'll leave you this last thought just about lostness before I go turn over to Matt. And... Um, when I arrived in 2010, someone said this to me. He said, Wes, I want you to know more people came to Christ in Egypt last year than all of Western Europe combined. I mean, you think in Portugal, Spain, Italy, the Malta Islands, Belgium, and the Netherlands. He said more people came to Christ in a heavy dominated Muslim country than all of Western Europe combined. So why are we doing what we do? One, because of our commitment to Christ. Second, because of lostness, and it calls us and demands us. And we want to do it just by the way you guys are doing life here. It's through relationships and being intentional. And so now I'm going to turn it back over to Matt. And Matt, I have to say thank you. He came and visited us, him and Matt. And uh, you, you were a great shot in my arm. An encouragement when you're going through stuff and you're there alone. Because if we get sick, there's not like I have a church family coming in and saying, hey, let me help you and make you a meal. Um, but, man, you and Matt came out and you guys, you, you don't know the encouragement. You were to me personally just to keep going. And uh, so I thank you, and I thank you for some of the people like Dale and Lauren that were here who came and helped us just do ministry in our area that we eventually saw people come to Christ out of it. So on a personal note, let me say thank you. Appreciate you, man. Let's pray. Let's pray for what's going on for, in Spain, what will happen, what will continue to happen, and for the White family. God, I love you, and I thank you so much for this family. I am so grateful um, for your sovereign hand in, in allowing us to meet, allowing us to be able to do ministry together. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that right now you would get their hearts ready for the people that you're gonna have them encounter. I pray for Michelle, the mom of the family, the, the wife, and I pray that you would keep her close to you and that, God, you would reveal yourself through your word to her and you would help her to be confident in what you've called her to do. I pray for Wes, that you would help him to be the leader of his family, that, God, you would use him for incredible things. Lord, we pray that, if, that hundreds, if not thousands of people would come to know you because of their ministry over there. And again, I pray for the safety of their family. I pray for the encouragement of their family. I pray for the new schools that they'll have to meet, the doctors that they will have to um, be introduced to. <clears throat> I pray for their friends, the boys meeting new friends, Carolina meeting new friends. Lord, we just pray for the absolute overall um, picture of what you're going to do in and through them. So Lord, in the midst between now and February the 1st, before they leave for Valencia, we pray, God, that you would each and every day keep them close, keep them clean, Help them to realize who you are and help them never to forget how big and how great you are. We love you. We thank you that we can partner with people to really bring the greatest message to the whole world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Galatians chapter four. There's only one guess that what we're gonna be talking about today, and that is a lot of grace and the 
error of the law a couple of years ago. And I say this situation, it ended really well. So hang with my story for just a minute. My wife's grandfather had passed away. And uh, my kids were at the age where we really were using that opportunity to explain to them that granddad was no longer here, but that because of granddad repenting of his sins and placing his faith in Jesus at 61 years old, that he actually was with Jesus, that he was in heaven in the presence of God. And uh, uh, going to the funeral, we went into the funeral home, and of course the casket was there, and it was a very emotional time. And um, I was really trying to be the dad to, to my kids, and the husband to my wife. And we got there, and it was a, we prayed together, and we tried to unpack really everything that had happened. And then as we're getting ready to leave, Jake said what I believe is perhaps one of the funniest things I've ever heard him say in my life. We got ready to leave this old, old funeral home, really old funeral home, and had a distinct smell to it in terms of just, it was an older funeral home in Portsmouth, Virginia. And we got ready to leave and go out the door, and Jake said, hold on, I got a question. He's four years old. I'm like, what could this be? And I'm like, okay, buddy, what, what, what question do you have? He looks around and he goes, is this heaven? No, understand something. I had just gotten through telling him that granddad was with Jesus. He had just gotten through seeing granddad and he looked with absolute utter disappointment. Is this heaven? Because this is not all it's cracked up to be, dad. This is not all that you've told me that it would be like. And here's what I believe is, is happening. Here's what happens when we live by the law. I believe that there's gonna be some point in some time in our life that we're gonna ask the question with great disappointment, is this all there is? We're gonna ask the question like Jake asked the question. Is this really biblical Christianity? Is this really what life is all about? I think what we've been hammering and what really Paul's been hammering for a long time is that the grace of God can overwhelm you. The grace of God is a better way to live. Paul understood what it was like to be confined and in bondage to the law, and he came to understand what grace and being justified by the grace and faith in God, and he realized the difference between the two, and he was writing this letter, and he repeated himself over and over again so that we could understand that the law is not the way to live. It will lead you into great disappointment. Legalism, as we have been talking about for quite some time, is simply not a hard way to live. It's an impossible way to live. It's an impossible way to live. My life group, I lead a life group in my home, and we've been sitting around our life group. I feel like that each and every Sunday night, we come in, we eat together from 5.30 till 6, 6.15. We sit down in our living room, and we go, and we start going through the book of Galatians like we're doing here on Sunday mornings. And I feel like our life group is a group of people who really could be looked at as, we're, it's like an AA group. And it's like, I feel like sitting in my group going, my name is Matt and I'm a legalist. Because what has really happened here is I grew up with the message that Jesus Christ saves and that the gospel can change everything. But in the midst of that, I kind of substituted unbeknownst to myself, behavior modification, we could call that moralistic therapeutic deism, where my behavior really is an indication if I am a follower of Jesus. And, and so here's, here's what legalism, we know what legalism is. Legalism is an, is an excessive adherence to laws. Now listen, we have laws, we have rules. In my house I have four kids, we have rules. Do not run in the street, you could die, right? 
Those are good rules. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Those are good. But depending on those to be the, dependent, the dependence for our salvation leads us into great, great disappointment. Um, legalism basically is, like I said, is not a hard way to live. It's an impossible way to live. It's narrow. It's harsh. It's confining. It's a, it has a tight leash and it treats us like infants. Legalism takes away a relationship and sets us up to live by a bunch of man-made rules. Legalism, basically what it does is it removes the conscience of biblical principles and replaces that basically with matters of preference. And when we take away, when, when, when legalism comes in, we basically say, hey, this is what I want. I want these things, not because if it's a biblical standard, because the Bible endorses it, but really when we come down, it's just because of a preference for us. And when we choose things over our preference, the one thing, the one thing that escapes is a passion for the gospel and a great understanding and definition of the gospel. And I think Paul, what Paul was doing, and even what he says in the text this morning, is he's trying to get us once again to understand how incompetent the law is to live by. And in this morning, he gives us sort of an, an illustration, a common illustration, a common story, and he draws a great illustration through it. His point in our text today, which is Galatians chapter 4, 21 through 31. That's where we're going to be this morning, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. His point in this section is that not only the gospel makes absolutely anyone a child of God, but that the most proud, moral, and religiously able are often the ones that are most likely left out. And so I want you to go ahead and dive in with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21. The, the breakdown is pretty simple. The breakdown that he gives us in this text is such. First, he comes out with a question. It's a rhetorical question. You ask those questions on a daily basis. For those of you that have kids, you ask those questions on a daily basis. Luke came to me yesterday morning as I was working in my office, reviewing my message. He came to me and said, I just ate a cookie for breakfast. And I said, seriously? Why would you, you're not supposed to do that. I didn't ask, I wasn't looking for an answer. I was a rhetorical question. Why would you do that? You know the rule. So we have a question we have an illustration and we have an application. That's sort of how the text is broken down in the 11 verses that we're gonna cover this morning. First of all, let's start with verse one. I'm not gonna read the whole section at once. I'm gonna read one verse at a time and we'll unpack it together. The first question, the first thing he says is in verse 21 and says this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now listen, this is Paul and he's getting very aggressive. His tone is firm. His tone is direct. If we go back to Galatians chapter three, verse one, he says, oh foolish Galatians. He asked them, who has bewitched you, cast a spell on you to believe something like this, that Jesus plus the law equals salvation? How could you do that? So he comes in this section and he asks them a question, not really looking for an answer. He, he basically in essence says this, do you know what you're signing up for? Do you realize that the law, which is basically 613 laws, given to us by Moses and recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament, do you realize what they say? Do you realize what they demand? Are you really wanting to live that way? In essence, this is what he's trying to say. Do you want to live in such a way that all things are dependent upon you, what you do and not what Christ has done? That's the question he starts off with. Are you do you really wanna live this way? 
Do you really know what you're getting into? Now listen, it's, it's important for us to understand that they were well-versed in the law. They knew what the law said. They knew what the law dictated. Paul had planted a church in this region. The church is in Galatia. And then he catches wind that they're drifting back into Jesus plus something equals salvation. And Paul was coming to them like we've been saying for several weeks now that no, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so he asks him the questions. And if you look at the verse, there is no answer. But I do think that if this was a script or a screenplay, you would say in parentheses, crickets chirping. You get that? There's like, there's dead silence. You can hear everything. There's no answer. I believe they're probably looking around if you give me such freedom going, uh, um, uh, oh, well, um, uh. And then he goes in because I believe Paul's tone in this letter, this tone, especially in this section, was direct. He was very direct in what he was trying to get across. Well, then he goes into really what we call the next part is the illustration. In order to get to the illustration, he first introduces them to a situation that they're all very familiar with. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. Now that's something incredibly familiar to many of you, and it's something very familiar to them. And if you were to ask the Galatians, they would automatically assign themselves to Isaac, that it's Abraham and Sarah, and we believe and we come through Isaac. That Sarah is our mother, so to speak. Well, let's flesh it out. Let's go back and recount basically the situation. For verse 22 says this, For it is written, that's the scripture, he's reminding them this was in the text, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So Paul brings up a historic event of Abraham and his two sons. And so in Genesis chapter 12, this is what basically took place. Abraham is a pagan moon worshiper in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And in Genesis chapter 12, God in his sovereignty came and chose Abraham to be the, the patriarch of the faith. And he came to him in Genesis chapter 12 and he said, hey, I'm gonna bless those who bless you, I'm gonna curse those who curse you, I want you to gather up all your family and I want you to go. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse eight, it said Abraham obeyed and he went, not knowing where he was going. But he obeyed. And so Abraham takes his family and he leaves. In Genesis chapter 15, we know that Abraham is married to Sarah. And in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I will give you a son. And he, gives, he says that to Abraham and Sarah. Well, then in Genesis chapter 16, which really accounts several years later, Sarah tells Abraham that, hey, you know what? Basically, she's suggesting God must have forgot. He, he must have forgot exactly what he promised to do. And so basically, I think that you should go take Hagar as your wife and that you should bear a son with, she should bear a son with you. And so the result of that was Ishmael. And um, in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham and Sarah again and says, hey, you're going to have a son as I promised you to have a son. And the son's name is, help me, the son's name is Isaac, right? The son's name is Isaac. But the issue is, is that uh, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. And so what did they do? They laughed. A lot like when God tells you something that he's going to do and you think, oh, there's no way that's gonna happen. There's no way that's gonna happen. You might chuckle. You know what, I, I get so excited when we, this whole week we've been talking about what's called the blue sky process. 
We've been talking to engineers and, 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 and folks about the land that we're under contract for. And, and I get so excited to think about what God is doing right here in our midst. You know, it's true, we don't need a building to do what God's called us to do, right? But it's so exciting to see the, the plans unfold. And we're so grateful and so excited to be able to reveal this to you in the coming months. But sometimes God comes to us and says something where you go, there is no way in the world that's gonna happen. But what does that say? That says a lot about what we believe about God. It says a lot about our belief in who he is and what he desires to do. God made a promise and God is, God is quick to keep his promises. God is good to keep his promises. He came to Abraham and, and Sarah and said, you're gonna have a son. And so, so we have two sons. We have Hagar, we have two sons, one born to Hagar, which is Ishmael, and we have another son born to Sarah, which is Isaac. Now let's look at verse 23 as he continues to recount the historical event of, of the situation. So look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now if, if I was you, if you have a Bible, you know, you're okay with writing in it or highlight, I would highlight the words, the first word, but, and I would highlight the word while. Because what that does is it gives us an indication of how different these two sons are. How much, how different the point is going to be that he's getting ready to make. So what's, what's the basic difference? The basic difference that God, that, that Paul gives us in this text is that Ishmael is born of the flesh. There was a promise that he would have a child and that child's name would be Isaac. That was given based on a promise that was given on the sovereign hand of God. Abraham and Sarah basically said, God forgot about us, so you need to go be with Hagar. That basically is taking things in their own hands or human effort. And so there's a huge difference between the promise of God and taking things into our own hands. Let's continue. Philip Ryken says this, one was born by proxy, the other by promise. One came by works, the other came by faith. One was a slave and the other was free. So let's go to verse 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 say this. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, using an allegory, an allegory basically is a story in which specific people, places, and events stand for deep spiritual truths. A common allegory would be like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not a common way used today in terms of to reveal a point. And a lot of people, when you take a look at this text, will say that what is being suggested is that it, Abraham and Sarah was, was a fictitious event. That's not at all what the scripture is teaching. We know that the Bible is completely inspired and completely true, and that that is actual event. And so what Paul is really doing in this text is he's taking a, a true event that they're well aware of, that all of his audience knows and knows backwards and forwards. And then he's drawing a super spiritual point, a lot of points that can help them understand. So in this case, Paul interpreted a story by Hagar and Sarah, literally and allegorically. Now, basically what we see in the text is, let's go ahead and take a look at verse 24, the rest of it. These women are two covenants. So let's take a look at the first one. One is from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law was given, okay? Bearing children for slavery. If you have children, if you are a slave and you have children, then your children are in slavery. She is Hagar. She represents slavery. She represents the law. She represents works. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. 
There's the allegory. There's the picture right there he's saying. She represents good works. She represents human effort. In Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Now, the present Jerusalem is known to be in bondage at that time. They're in great bondage right now. So when you take a look at what Hagar represents, you're seeing bondage and slavery in the Old Testament and the law. You're seeing not freedom and not grace. Basically what Paul is sitting there saying is that there are two ways that you can live life. There's two ways that we can do things. The first way that we can do things is basically through human initiative, where we take it upon ourselves, we white-knuckle ourselves, and we just do it. We fix it. We correct it. We take it into our own hands. Well, God, we mistake God's silence for freedom to do and fix what we think he is quiet on. And everybody, everybody in here, we could sit there and we could have hours and hours of testimony of how God has told us to do something or revealed some things to us and we've taken things in our own hands. But here's the result. Human initiative brings human results. Human effort will only yield on its best day human results. And that's not at all what Paul is trying to get us to live by and live for. It's kind of like, we'll be like, Jake, is this what life is all about? Is, is this truly what we're living for? And there's another way that we can live. There's human effort, and then there's also divine initiative, which is how Isaac was born. You see, when we live by the flesh or we live by human effort, sometimes we think, hey, I just need a new job, and I'm going to go ahead and get that job, or I'm going to take that job because it's more money, it'll be better for the family, and it works out that it's not anywhere near as good as you thought it could be, because what happens is we spoke for God, we didn't listen to him. And so another thing is we, we, we house, we just we need a bigger house, and again, we speak for God instead of listening, listening to him. Well, the marriage is really rough. And so I know what my deal is. I need to fix those things. The greatest thing that needs to be fixed in a marriage is our hearts. To be captivated by the beautiful, beautiful gospel. Because it is beautiful. And it changes everything. Guys, you might even say, well, it's bleeding in from the marriage and it's going into the family. And I just need to fix these things. Here's what I would say to you. The greatest demonstration of the gospel to your children is how you love their mom. How you love their mom is the best picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is impossible to humanly muster up all the effort to do that. It must be in the spirit of the living God in order for us to be able to do that. So Paul is basically saying here, you can go through Hagar, or you can go through Sarah. Hagar represents the covenant of law, Mount Sinai. She produces children of slavery, and she has the present Jerusalem, which is in bondage. But then there's Sarah. She represents the covenant of grace and the promise in Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where God told Isaac, hey, I want you to go sacrifice your son. He's like, what? What did you just say? I want you to sacrifice your son. Go up onto the mountain. He goes to sacrifice his son. God supernaturally provides grace to him and a picture for us and he comes down and they worship sarah represents the children of freedom and sarah represents the new the new jerusalem let's take a look as the illustration continues 
Take a look as it continues here. Verse 26. Verse 26 says this. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So he just got through talking about Hagar and what she represents. And then he comes in and he says a bold statement. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she's our mother. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the Jerusalem that she represents, the New Jerusalem, the one that God is preparing, where there is no sickness, there is no death, there is no, no crying, there is no tears. He makes a bold statement, I found you and I taught you that salvation is by grace and faith alone. And so she, Sarah, she is our mother, not, not Hagar. He then basically goes and he quotes a text from Isaiah 54, 1. He says in verse 20, 27, for it is written, it says, rejoice, O barren one. I'm gonna stop right there. Many of you right now are in an unbelievably barren time in your life where you see God I can't hear you I can't see you and oftentimes when we're in those barren times when we don't have what we want or what we need we think that God is silent and again it's licensed to take things into our own hands but if you really unpack this verse and you really see the promise let's continue on because I believe this I believe that it's in the barren moments that God is most vocal in your life and in my life. Because it is those times where he is shaping us and molding us to be the people that he wants us to be. Because we have to understand, God knows who you will become. He doesn't know just who you are. He knows what you can become and who you can be. And everything in your life is molding us and shaping us to be that person that he wants us to be. And it's in those barren moments of life that I, I believe he speaks his loudest. And I encourage us to hear. Look, look at what the verse says. Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. So here is Jerusalem in bondage and not bearing any fruit and overwhelmed. And this is the promise of Isaiah. Or this is the prophet Isaiah making a promise and a prediction of what's going to happen. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Voice your concerns to God. Let it be known that, man, you're struggling. It's tough. It's tiring. It's overwhelming. And it says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So I want to let you know something. If you believe in me and you trust in me, I want to get you to a place in the barren moments where you can rejoice in the silence and you can be excited when God speaks his loudest. He speaks his loudest. God promised that one day he would fill the earth with far more children than the old Jerusalem could ever have. This was designed to be sort of a wake-up call to them and really even to us. You are the children of the Most High God. Your mother is Sarah. And then I believe he asked the question, right? Your mother is Sarah, right? Let's take a look at the application. Take a look at the application in verses 28 through 31. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He basically looks at him and says, hey listen, I came to you. I founded you on this principle. Hagar is not your mother. 
Ishmael is not your brother. You're not a child like Ishmael. You are a child like Isaac because I founded you on a principle that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's who you are. I'm reminding you of that. Don't listen to the Judaizers who are adding to the equation. And really thereby, when they add to the equation, it basically becomes Jesus plus something equals nothing. When they believe it's something, it actually is nothing. In verse 29 it says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is now. Verse 29 is basically a reference to the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Literally speaking, Ishmael completed and mocked Isaac. In Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, here's what it says. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Allegorically speaking, this is what's taking place. This is what he's suggesting. What he is suggesting is that there is a war in your soul, in your flesh, for works-based effort and grace-based effort. And basically what is taking place is that Hagar, Ismael represents works and Isaac represents the grace. And what I want you to do is, is I want you to understand that for the rest of your life, the spirit and the flesh will be at war with each other. So when somebody says something on TV that is, or wherever the case may be, and they get mocked for it, whatever the case is, we should expect that. Here's what it says in the text. It says right here in verse 29, according to the flesh persecuted him. The flesh will always be at war with the spirit. It will not get better. We will be a minority. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. So basically what happens is that Paul comes in, he quotes a passage, basically what Sarah said. Sarah said, as we just learned in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, that she saw basically the son... Ishmael laughing or mocking Isaac. And she stood up and she said, get him out, send him away. And Abraham sent out Hagar and Ishmael. And basically what Paul is suggesting here is this, is that Galatians, Northwest Community Church, the gospel is very clear that you must get rid of a works-based religion and a works-based faith system. It's not biblical. And I want you to come back to the text. I want you to come back to what the scripture teaches. It is incompetent to do what you, what you desire it to do. Here's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said it this way. Those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort. For they are trying, contrary to the will of God, to achieve by their own works what God wants to grant to believers by sheer grace for Christ's sake. Christ does not love you for what you did. 
Christ loves you for how he demonstrated it to you and what he did for you. Christ does not love you for what you do for him. Christ loves you because he chose to do everything you needed. As we sort of conclude and wrap up, I just really have two statements of summary and basically one point of application that I want to make with you. The first thing is this. I phrase it in form of a question. Do you really want your salvation and your life as a believer to be dependent on your good works? I grew up in a Christian home. And I'm grateful for my parents for raising me in a Christian home. But a lot of behaviors that I learned along the way allowed me to judge un, unbiblically characterize or distance myself from people. Let me give you an example of that. Alcohol is not a sin. Alcoholism is a sin. But the way that I grew up, if I saw you with a glass of wine, or if I saw you with a beer, I automatically thought you are a JV Christian. You're not varsity. And there were other things that bled over into that. As I sit in my life group, and I realize and many of us have grown up in the church. I think it's incredibly important for us to really unpack what it truly means to live that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And be careful that we don't have extra biblical points to our preferences of what we believe and what we teach. So my question for you would be this as we close this. Do you really want your salvation to be dependent on your good works? And if you do, I believe one day you're gonna ask the question, like Jake did, is, is, this, is this all there is? With great disappointment. I think the, the second question I would ask is, who is your mother? Hagar or Sarah? Sarah represents the promise of God. Sarah represents divine initiative. Sarah represents relying on the power of a holy and awesome God. Sarah represents freedom. Sarah represents the gospel. And finally, I would say this. I made a mistake. I, I planned to have a class called Sharing Jesus basically at this, at 1045, excuse me, the 1045 hour starting today. But as I thought about it, I really haven't advertised the class as much as I really should have. And so I postponed the class. The class will start on February the 9th. And here's why. I think it's incredibly important for the season that we are in as a church to really understand the gospel but I don't think that just understanding it is truly enough. I think learning how to share it is the next step. And so here's what we're gonna do. For the next four weeks, you're gonna hear an announcement that on February the 9th, Charlie Murphy in room 1502 is going to teach whoever wants to come a class, a six-week class, on how to share the gospel with people that you surround yourself with. I think it's incredibly important for us to be in the season that we're in and to realize where we are. That man, we've just defined that he wants you to do something with it. It is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and that's great. Now you know what? Now he wants you to do something with it. And we want to give you that opportunity. Maybe some of you are going, man, I don't know how to share the gospel. Listen, we'll show you how. We'll show you how. So my questions are, do you really want your salvation to be based on what you do that's revealed in what you do? as opposed to what a Christ has done. My prayer is that we would all be able to stand up and say, Sarah is my mother, I am free, and I'm free indeed. I love you guys, let's pray. God, I love you and I thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to stand up here
and to teach this week. I'm grateful for the text that we've learned. I'm grateful for Paul giving us a great illustration of what it means to be a follower. I love you, God. I thank you for salvation. I thank you it's only possible through Jesus that we can be saved. I thank you, Lord, for the true message that you've given to us. Um, I thank you for pictures, and I thank you for illustrations, and I'm grateful for those. Lord, I'm grateful for everybody that's in here today. Many of us have grown up in church, but God, at the same time, help us not to tack something on to a message that is absolutely complete. Let us hear you in those barren times. Let us run and run with grace. Thank you, God, for loving us and for sharing us the greatest message in the world. In Jesus' name I pray.